Hello, Vixies, Vixens, and all you other folks out there listening. Thanks again for joining. This is Maddie, your co-host, joined as usual by my co-host, Jesse. What's up? <laughs> and tonight, we're excited to bring back a, an old MLGA friend of ours. Um, he's not exactly on our network, but he's a longtime friend of the, of the group, of the shows, and of all of us. Uh, this is Kyle Anzalone, and... I think uh, I'll let him kind of uh, do a little bit of the talking here, but um, most immediately and prominently uh, connected to the Libertarian Institute. Yep. Yeah, I'm the uh, news editor at the Institute. I'm uh, the opinion editor at antiwar.com. And then I co-host the Conflicts of Interest podcast. So I stay pretty busy with that stuff. It is like uh, my full-time mm-hmm. gig to do this. So uh, I, I do have that uh, advantage. So I get to sit here and read foreign policy news all day long. Uh, everybody wants to know what's happening with the wars. <laughs> Not really, but that that's what I do. Um, so yeah, I I known you guys for a long time. I, uh, I well, yes. you said I'm not with like the MLGA network. I've been friends with all of yeah. you since the very beginning. You have. Um, <laughs> in fact, I think along with like Kim and Ryan, I was one of uh, those of you who were writing on the uh, Jason Stapleton website at one point in time. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. Things, really? things have certainly changed the since then. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I was, I was <laughs> that initial kick out of that group, uh, uh, Stapleton's group, and moved over to MLGA. So, yeah. So from there, I, I've just, you know, I, I stick with liberty. I just read about it all the time, libertarian news and foreign policy all day. And uh, I've kind of made a little career out of it for myself. And so hopefully I could uh, talk some foreign policy with you all today. No, I love yes. it. And um, <laughs> yeah, no, that is funny. And it's uh, really good to actually like talk to you because like you said, we've been, um, we've been sort of online friends for a long time. And um, we've actually, I used to, follow I was following you back in the Kyle's Files days when oh, yeah. yeah I think you were that was like more part-time <laughs> for you though and I mean it was still like very intricate and elaborate detailed work and so that's why I'd tune in I was like okay what's Kyle say um but and it was like you know short and digestible um but also I think and just because I really appreciate people's backstories, like their experiences and where they came from. But like you were kind of in some kind of teaching role at that point, right? Like that's oh, where yeah. you, that's the world you came from. Yeah. So uh, I think maybe when I first started, I was actually like more of a social worker. And then I moved and I got a job working at a therapy school not far outside of Boston. And so, yeah, back in those days, I wasn't necessarily uh, promoting my name and everything. I was always a little bit worried that my <laughs> yeah. libertarian ideals may get me in trouble with the workforce. But now uh, probably wear my libertarian institute, you know, sweatshirt everywhere I go. Don't have to worry about that because, uh, you know, the getting paid by Scott Horton. He's not going to yeah. complain about me promoting liberty and anti-war ideas. So uh, yeah, I did that until the summer of 2020. And yeah. I had spent like a year working basically two and a half part-time jobs. I was doing the show. I was working at the Libertarian Institute. And I was also uh, working at antiwar.com and working at the school, like for a full school day. And so mm. once uh, the, the COVID pandemic happened and all that, uh, I kind of saw the writing on the wall with the school. Um, not necessarily like, I'm not, I want to say like in 2020, I was immediately like, huh, masks don't work. And anybody who wears one is stupid and everything like that. But I did feel like the COVID restrictions that they were going to put in the place in the schools were 
more restrictive than need be and that was just my personal feeling i'm not like you know making any scientific judgments or saying like <laughs> anybody was wrong for doing opposite but i realized that i was going to be in a place where i was going to be forced to enforce a lot of rules that mm -hmm. i didn't believe in and i thought would mm -hmm. be long-term destructive for students health and so i didn't make a big deal out of it but i did you know decide that that was the right time to make the full jump and just do this full time where i have absolute 100 percent moral clarity with what i'm doing and have no doubts that you know I i'm putting kids in a position that they shouldn't be in yeah that's so important <laughs> i yep and i'm sure you're not alone honestly um I was one of the ones that said the mask was not going to work from the very beginning, though. But that's because I know what I'm a nurse, so I know those masks are fucking useless. We're science so. nerds. So immediately, well, I guess weird. initially, I did listen to Dr. Fauci, and he said, you know, you don't put masks on off because they're really not effective unless you're in a medical setting, unless you're using them really correctly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I had worked in mental health, and so, you know, working in mental health with, like, people that have schizophrenia and things, like, you do encounter people that like want to wear gloves and masks outside mm -hmm. all the time and you explain to them scientifically why it doesn't work and so back in like 2013 and 2012 when i was doing that mm -hmm. i was you know getting applauded for helping people with mental illness now <laughs> oh if i were to say those same things i would be the one that has a mental illness so right. yeah it's, and that's it's crazy canceled. yeah yeah i didn't I think, think about, i had never thought about though. that yeah yeah yeah, no, I, I, like, it's amazing that, I, I, like, at the same school I was working, I'm sure if a kid tried to come to a school in a mask in 2019, we would say, you know, it's really going to hurt your ability to socialize with other kids. They're not really going to know what you're thinking. It's going to look kind of strange. And to be honest, it's really not going to cut down the likelihood that you get sick. And, you know, that would, that would be the, like, the little, you know, thing you tell them and ask them every day to take the mask off if they came into school. But, you know, now that apparently things have changed uh, in the way oh that, uh, you know, That's viruses weird. interact with cloth. Yeah, I guess every <laughs> 2020 is when the Kyle, vi all viruses changed. It's novel. It's a novel virus. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like, okay, so anyway, I, we said we wouldn't talk about COVID, but oh, I, that's right. I do always appreciate um, people's where people came from and you know hearing their story, especially because you want you did come from like a slightly different um, work environment than Jesse and I would have been, even though Jesse's sort of um, even where like her current job and medical work does involve troubled yeah, <laughs> troubled right now yeah. so i mean anyway the world is crazy and sometimes you know i almost wish i was insane like legitimately insane so i didn't have to be so aware of all this because so <laughs> you know here we are um two years into this quote-unquote pandemic i can't even use i hate using the word since they changed its definition and i don't agree with it at all. But anyway, so, you know, we're two years into this scheme, uh, for lack of a better word. And, uh, you know, sure enough, they're beating the war drums again, because I think, you know, what really helps um, presidents and administrations sort of get past some bad domestic policy press is <gasps> go to war, mm -hmm. bomb some people. And I'm sure, you know, there's probably plenty of things that went by and went on sort of un, 
unnoticed by most of us, even as, you know, libertarians that might be more aware of just how awful our government is in terms of foreign policy. You know, like I said, before we started recording, like Jesse and I have been focusing on COVID all year or these past two years, because like, that's sort of like how we thought we could make a difference and what we thought we needed to say, like based on our experience and our jobs and everything like that. So I know we probably missed a whole lot of, um, really important things out there that connected us to the world. And, <laughs> but I'm, I guess, you know, we're bringing you on because of course, um, like the Ukraine and Russia thing right now seems to be on everybody's tongues. And I think like, I'd love for you to help fill us and our listeners in that may not have paid enough attention the past few years, but are starting to be unable to ignore the fact that <clears throat> something's going on and we can feel like the tensions rising and we, like I said, we kind of know based on patterns and past experience that war and these games that they play overseas are uh, sometimes their ticket out of um, a bad, <laughs> bad home front. Yeah. So I guess the first place maybe I'll start with this, though, is on the COVID thing and foreign policy. When the pandemic initially happened, there was a real drive at the UN and a lot of people talking about like, hey, if there's a pandemic going on, then maybe like for real, we should think about doing a global ceasefire. Like if you can't travel between countries, then you probably shouldn't be going to war with different countries, yeah. right? And also this mm -hmm. would really like cut down on, say, the amount of war games going on. Like, Mm -hmm. If, uh, if you know, you're going to send a bunch of Marines to the Thailand or Philippines or, or something like this, well, maybe you shouldn't do that in the middle of a pandemic because you're telling everybody not to travel internationally. And let's be honest, like if you're doing military drills, like how much can you really go through all the different mitigation measures that they tell you that work, mm -hmm. which, you know really don't so you know that that it's obvious that this is going to you know spread COVID to send soldiers all over the world and do all this crazy kind of stuff and like maybe for a month that was a real topic and then it completely vanished <laughs> and that was a, a real like huh moment for me that like oh so you're not taking this as seriously as you say it's like you know when mm -hmm. all the billionaires fly to the cop 26 yep. anti-climate change conference on their private planes and then they all say well you know we're not gonna like worry about our f-35s and all the pollution from the the massive military machinery we have we're just gonna talk about limiting how many miles per hour uh are you know maximizing the amount of miles per gallon a car has to get into crazy stuff like this right so so, you know, it's kind of obvious that the elite aren't taking this quite as seriously as they tell you to from pretty early on. But anyways, on the Ukraine situation, I guess the, the first thing I want to say and stress is that the rhetoric of invasion is almost all coming from the United States and a little bit from the UK, but it is not being matched by even the Ukrainians. Uh, some of the Baltic states and Poland are, are very, so if you, you'll hear like the Polish and the Estonians are very concerned about Russian invasion. But then if you listen to the uh, Ukrainians, the president says that the rhetoric that the United States is putting out is causing a crisis. The foreign minister says we don't believe the doomsday predictions of the Americans. Uh, actually, recently, the president said the, the crisis present or the threat presented by Russia has increased since last April. And so 
you know, that let's understand that the, the American rhetoric is a little bit inflated. Hmm. Also, uh, the French president said that, look, Russia isn't looking to invade Ukraine. They're looking for security guarantees in Eastern Europe. And, and that's really what this is about, is that NATO has expanded since the end of the Cold War. Uh, at that time, you know, Germany was split between East and West, and the U.S. made a deal with Russia uh, after the Soviet Union dissolved to say that if you allowed Germany to reunite and be a NATO member state, then we wouldn't further expand NATO East. Uh, Eastward past that. And of course, in 1999, Bill Clinton broke that promise. And all the way now where we have North Macedonia, uh, Montenegro, mm -hmm. and are talking about including states on Russia's border, like pretty close to their capital to of Moscow, like Ukraine, like Georgia, um, like Moldova, that, you know, very close to Russia that they want to include into NATO. And, you know, for from an American perspective, if the Americans had lost the Cold War, if NATO had dissolved, if the Warsaw Pact had expanded and said instead and now included uh, the entire <coughs> Western Europe, Europe, right? And they were talking about including uh, Canada and Mexico into NATO and sailing, um, you know, Russian ships in the, in the Gulf of Mexico. That That's kind of the equivalent to what the mm -hmm. U.S. is doing here. And so I think in part of what's going on right here is Russia has decided the way that they're going to get some kind of negotiations with the U.S. on these issues is by creating something of a crisis, something that will grab the American people's attention because the American people don't care and the Biden administration doesn't care. So they've put uh, some a number of troops on the Ukrainian and, you know, put in quotes border. We're talking dozens, if not over 100 miles away from the actual border with Ukraine that they're talking about. But at the same time, you know, this isn't uh, World War One of trench warfare necessarily, where you're going to just have thousands of men running across no man's land or anything like that. You know, this is modern day warfare of drones, uh, rockets, missiles, snipers, and, you know, these kind of guided missile weapons, suicide drones. Um, but at the same time, the, the Russian troops still aren't in position to, like, roll over the border tomorrow and the ukrainians say actually that russia would take a, a solid month if they if today they decide they want to mobilize to invade ukraine it would take them an entire month to get everybody into the positions they would need to be in to do that and so uh at the same time though russia has at least you know put some troops in the region and certainly has played into a little bit of the western rhetoric that you know there's a possible invasion coming russia has given their equivalent statement saying that they're they're looking at military technical options which if you're thinking of the like us that that would be all options are on the table is what they're saying there and so you know this has created a situation where uh france and germany are, are legitimately concerned the us is legitimately concerned and now the us is responding to some uh russian uh not, I guess, offers, but Russia is demanding some security guarantees. Mm -hmm. And while Russia has demanded, say, not including Ukraine into NATO, they've also demanded removing uh, strategic U.S. weapons from Eastern Europe. And that is something the Biden administration seems willing to engage on. And just uh, the strategic weapons that they're talking about are the Patriot missile batteries. And these are missile or air defense systems. But the problem with them is, is that the same launchers they use for the interception 
semiconductor missiles. And so, you know, they'll say, oh, it's a defensive missile system. And yeah, maybe it is. But you could take out the interceptor missile and put in an offensive missile into the same launcher. Mm. And so that's why Russia has a problem with it. And so if Biden is actually interested in negotiating on, you know, removing those missile launchers from Eastern Europe, then maybe something could get done here. But Russia is very concerned about uh, the NATO membership for Ukraine, uh, Georgia, and Moldova. I think um, one thing that really like started to wake me up um, when it came to foreign policy, like I was kind of a neocon light <laughs> and I, it really took like people like Dave Smith and Tom Woods to, um, and like even Stefan Molyneux to kind of present the problems with foreign policy, both like practically standing, but also like morally and kind of like made the comparisons and analogies that made me sort of see through what another country's eyes might be. And instead of like the, we're the good guys and only we can be the good guys, like, because that's just what we've been taught as Americans. Um, and we've been told that that's like the patriotic stance to take. And that's the stance we have to take, of course, right? We have to you know, respect what our country is doing, uh, the government's doing, the military's doing, you have to support the troops no matter what, right? You don't question what the troops are doing, where the troops are, why they're there, you just support them. Um, but so I think what you mentioned, and um, very quickly, because <laughs> you can run through this like it's, uh, like it is your job, it is your job. Um, but so the fact that like, you know, Ukraine border and all these and these other countries you just mentioned that are bordering Russia, it would be similar to Russia, um, as was like the whole Cold War issue with like the scare of Cuba becoming too close. Cuba's an island. It's not even attached to us. Like, and it's a shitty little <laughs> island in the Caribbean, like, <laughs> sorry. And so like the scare that our government was able to impart in our people when Russia or the Soviet Union was becoming a little too close with um, <laughs> Trudeau's dad down in Cuba. Um, or mom. Or mom, whatever. <laughs> whichever, <laughs> whichever commie was there at the time. But so, you know, if they were that scared about Cuba, this, like I said, kind of somewhat insignificant island other than geographic location, it's like, imagine... Russia becoming friends with um, Canada or Mexico or, you know, Puerto Rico or trying to take Puerto Rico or something and like trying to make a legitimate case to the world and to us, like the American citizens that are feeling a little bit attacked that, oh, no, it's okay. It's okay. We're doing this, um, you know, for everybody's good and you're going to like it and it's okay. So it really... Like, I don't know, it, it all it took is like a few times like that was actually put into perspective for me. But otherwise, like, it's not what we're, we're growing, grown up, like, learning or thinking about. It's just very, very, very one sided. And um, I think that's how, like, we've gotten to where we are that, like you said, Americans kind of don't care, which is sad. Um, but it's uh, we've been purposefully sort of kept in the dark. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, even worse, this past week you had uh, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki uh, criticize and attack Senator Josh Hawley for what she said, uh, repeating 
Putin's talking points on mm. the NATO issue. Of course, his whole statement is actually like very hawkish and aggressive towards Russia. But at the end, he basically reiterates the Biden position, which is that the Americans are not going to defend Ukraine from Russia. Biden has said we're not going to send troops there if Russia invades. The Ukraine is not a NATO country. Biden doesn't, you know, plan on making them a NATO country. Like if it came up for a vote tomorrow, I don't think Biden will vote to make Ukraine a NATO country. France certainly wouldn't. Germany certainly wouldn't. It would take a unanimous vote from the other NATO countries to do so. And so that is the only point that Holly was stating in, in his you know, letter mm -hmm. to Blinken, and he got called a, a Russian propagandist for it. Oh Same thing, you had AP uh, State Department reporter Matt Lee, and this clip has gone viral, uh, that The Hill has one a version of it on Twitter, <laughs> it's got like over 5 million views, and he's in exchange with uh, State Department press spokesperson Ned mm -hmm. Price, and, you know, Price says that Russia is going to create a fake video of dead people with crisis actors, not even like, you know, a false flag, just crisis actor level propaganda is what he's talking about here. And uh, Matt Lee, the reporter said, okay, well, what's the evidence for that? Mm -hmm. And he said, I just gave it to you. But he just said that it was, <laughs> that was the only evidence. That was it. And, you know, the price's final pushback was, well, if you rather believe Russia over the U.S. And so, you, you know, what you're talking about there, the, the indoctrination goes so deep that anybody who is simply not even like really dissenting not like Matt Lee and Josh Holly are not you know anti-war activists as they're not non-interventionists I mean I think it would be even a stretch to call either of them like America first types they're yeah. they're pro-war they're just not pro every single last war over every single last place on earth including Ukraine and the fact that you know they're even skeptical of the narrative gets them labeled as you know Russian propagandists and you know friends of Putin and all that so that kind of thing really deters people from taking up and learning more about the issue because if you end up on the wrong side of it, well, then, you know, you're a traitor to your country. And a Trump supporter. <laughs> somehow. Yeah, somehow, even though, uh, you know, that, one of the things I guess we could mention on how we got here. Yeah. When uh, in 2014, the U.S. organized a revolution in Ukraine. And mm -hmm. uh, this Wait, was one. Yeah. That statement alone always blows my mind. The U.S. <laughs> organized a revolution in Ukraine. Just Well, I guess they did two, actually, but this one in 2014. <laughs> There's another one, yeah. I think, in 2004. Uh, but this particular one is one of the most obvious coups in history because uh, when somebody worked for the U.S., an official, Victoria Newland, was caught mm -hmm. talking to another U.S. official, Jeffrey Pyatt, on a phone call, literally picking who was going to be in the new coup government and who was going to be in what positions. And it happened down to where she said it. She was talking about how the Europeans were taking too long. And if you want to go search the video, it's titled F the EU. Mm. And of course, the Republicans uh, get the scandal all wrong. They're mad that she said F the EU, not oh that she God. was playing a coup in Ukraine. Of course, this coup on the ground there, they had to use the most extreme ethno-nationalist uh, you know, portion yeah. of the Ukrainian resistance. And, you know, in America today, everybody gets called a Nazi. I'm talking about actual Nazis here in Ukraine, like uh, right set 
character, the, you know, these are people that when they chant blood and soil, they mean it in the Nazi kind of way. Uh, the Azov Battalion, like, openly does, like, Nazi salutes and, like, wears Nazi insignia. Like, you know, these people, like, World War II wasn't that long ago, right? And yeah. Ukraine was one of the, the bloodbaths of World War II. You know, we're talking about 27 million dead Russians. Mm. I don't know how many quite on the German side in this uh, area. But so there are people there that really do still sympathize with like their grandparents who fought with the Nazis, right? Like that's that's what we're talking about here. And those are the people that the U.S. backed in this coup. And so that created a civil war in Ukraine and Russia backed the side uh, that was opposed to the <laughs> Nazis because the side opposed to the Nazis were generally ethnic Russians. And um that uh, that mm -hmm. civil war initially, the U.S. like you know war state was calling and crying for Obama to provide the Ukrainians with and the Ukrainian military with lethal weapons, and and Obama said no can't do that. And of course, when Trump came into office, he did it. And so, yeah. you know, you get this crazy rhetoric where, you know, Trump is the most Putin friendly president ever. And he took steps in this war that Obama was uh, specifically unwilling to take. Wow. It's just crazy yeah. how our government supported Nazis again. Again. Like, <laughs> Don't forget. Uh, <laughs> let's not forget, you know, Project Paperclip and Stuff like that. So yeah, no, and, and I mean this is this is stated policy. There was recently an episode of the I think it's National Geographic show called Traffic. I, I've never watched it before. I only watched a short couple of clips of this one particular show, but for whatever reason, they were you know looking at the white nationalist movement in Ukraine, and this is like kind of if there are like violent white nationalists in the world, like the Christchurch shooter in New Zealand, uh, mm -hmm. like some of the people at the Charlottesville riot um, in the U.S. These people have traveled to and uh, look up to the, the the white nationalists and the Nazis in Ukraine. And so, yeah, this is this is like not a, a fake, you know, everybody's a Nazi. I want to punch somebody wearing a MAGA hat type <laughs> thing. This is, uh, you know, these people are hardened fighters. They're on the, you know, front lines over there. The U.S. has talked about how the CIA hired militaries to train uh, Ukrainians in uh, insurgency tactics uh, and things like that. And so I think there's a real a real threat here. And on that topic, maybe, uh, I think maybe one of the really dangerous things that could be going on here is there are people in the uh, Biden administration, like National Security Advisor Jade Sullivan, who I think are very, very dangerous people, and uh, Victoria Newland as well, who's uh, at the State Department. And I think maybe they see a situation here in Ukraine where for the past five or eight years, they've been training up, arming, and helping generally the Ukrainian side get ready for a potential war with Russia. And they have no delusions that Ukraine could possibly win a war with Russia. Just like Zbigniew Brzezinski never thought that the, that the Afghans were going to win a war against the Soviets. But they did think that if they baited the Soviets into invading Afghanistan, it would really hurt the Soviet empire. Mm -hmm. And likewise, we have recent statements from Jade Sullivan saying that, yeah, it would be brutal for Ukraine if Russia invaded but it would be a strategic victory for us as well. Mm -hmm. And I think there are starting to get, kind of have an eye on this idea that, hey, we could really, you know, the, the Hawks' favorite phrase, bloody Putin's nose here and give him a real punch in the face, even though, you know, we're, we're fighting the Russians to the last Ukrainian. Mm -hmm. 
just, you know, casually messing with countries that have nuclear weapons. It's, you know. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the only good news is on that point, Maddie, is that Biden has no intention of fighting the war that he started in Ukraine, right? And so we don't good. have to worry about <sighs> nuclear warfare. It's just the Ukrainians that are going to get slaughtered. Yeah, just the, so, just the Ukrainians will die. Yeah. That's all, right? It's, damage. Just, it's absolutely crazy that you would, you know, be so hawkish on this war in Ukraine and at the same time be so firm that you want no part in it whatsoever. <sighs> Pretty disgusting. I mean, we know they don't care about us. They clearly don't care about anybody else. And But somehow we're still supposed to be the the respected country of the world. And it's just really disheartening. <laughs> um, right. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a big point here is that if, you know, Russia is allowed to do that, it would be some unique violation of the liberal international order that has mm-hmm. existed since the end of World War II and kept the peace. Never mind, you know, the probably 2 million dead Afghans in the past 40 years and the 2 million Vietnamese that we killed during that war or the million Iraqis or the hundreds of millions of Yemenis or Syria or whatever. But, you know, they, they like to pretend that, you know, this is some kind of unique thing or that the land grab is, right? They're like, well, the last thing that could ever happen is that Ukraine, which really hasn't been like a state in its current borders for more than 30 something years now, uh, probably younger than a lot of people of the United States, right? Wow. But if the borders of that country ever change, that that would be some kind of catastrophic end to the liberal world order. Well, the U.S. has lopped off half of Syria for itself. Mm-hmm. We have President Biden who advocated a partition plan in Iraq. He wanted to divide into three ethno-nationalist states. I, nobody in the U.S. has any problem with Israel constantly annexing, you know, Palestine one village at a time. Israel mm-hmm. recently took the Golan Heights from Syria and officially, you know, annexed it and even the U.S. draws it in on that map. And, you know, these things don't destroy the international world order like the U.S. claims. Nobody really cares outside of the country that it happens and when borders change hands. And and so, yeah, it's it's all like catastrophizing and and just crying and shrieking from the halts all the time about how anytime any country we don't like does anything bad, it means the whole world is going to crumble. It's just not the case. Mm hmm. And it's not even necessarily maybe bad, but it's dictated as bad in the narrative, right? But it might be very right. reasonable or it might be, you know, um, agreed upon by both sides. But if our interests or our um, leaders, again, for lack of a better word, our, our dictators, perhaps, um, dictator, uh, t- tyrants in charge, like if it doesn't float their boat, it's bad and... You know, they're not really uh, shy from pulling punches. Yep. And uh, just on the the people's will part of it, in uh, Ukraine, there's two regions that uh, Russia has or could annex. One is the Crimean Peninsula, which was annexed by Russia in 2014. And it wasn't, it wasn't a battle for it. Uh, Russia had a base in Crimea. And after it was, uh, after the, the coup conducted by the U.S., they annexed the Crimean Peninsula, but they just chased off the Ukrainian soldiers. And in fact, about 50% of the Ukrainian soldiers in the uh, Crimea just defected to the Russian side and became Russian soldiers. And then they held a uh, vote, a referendum in Crimea, and I think 80 to 90 percent of the people who voted voted to join Russia. And while, I mean, you know, Russia was in control of the peninsula at that time, so 
maybe the the numbers aren't exactly as you know what they say they are and there may have been some people who felt like ah you know i should probably go vote for the person in charge now or something like that i don't know that that seems absolutely possible to me but at the same time it does seem like there's a good number of people in crimea and, and a distinct majority who would prefer to be a part of russia and the same thing is true in the donbass region and this is the area of um Ukraine that's labeled separatist. This is the area of Ukraine that's in civil war. There's really no fighting or conflict for the Donbass region. Russia has that. Ukraine can't take it back. The U.S. could, you know, demand Russia gives it back, but it's never going to change back and everybody knows it. The Donbass region is an open rebellion. And in 2014, they actually did vote in both regions of the Donbass. And in both of those regions, the people, again, overwhelmingly voted to join Russia over joining or, you know, remaining with Ukraine. And Putin actually rejected that and said, I don't want you. Um, I, mm-hmm. You know, there, there may be a couple reasons for that, one being that this is a... I, you know, maybe a Rust Belt type area to compare it to the U.S. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of pensioners and retirees. Uh, the infrastructure is crumbling. And so, you are you know, it's not going to be economically profitable to annex this area, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody thinks that Canada would be interested in annexing Kenosha, Wisconsin or something like that, right? <laughs> like, that's kind of what you're talking about a little bit here. Yeah. And so, like, that's a part of it. But also, it may have just been that Putin wasn't, like, prepared to, you know, take that much. He had just taken Crimea. And so either, you know, worried about international uh, complaining over it or just uh, logistical problems of making sure you could secure all that territory and things like that. And so it may be that, you know, Russia is now interested in taking uh, the Donbass region. However, I do think Putin kind of sees an advantage of keeping the Donbass as a part of Ukraine because these are people who are uh, generally ethnically Russian and generally pro-Putin and Russian. And so if you have a democracy, right, like let's say you have like the U.S. with California, does anybody think that the Democrats really want California to leave uh, the union? Because Mm -hmm. no, that would hurt them in, you know, the way the votes go and everything. And I think Putin kind of sees the same thing in the Donbass, where if they were to leave, that would be a good chunk of votes that would go towards having better relationship with Russia. That's true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hmm. An ex-KGB, he's not a dummy. (laughs) No, I mean, that's one thing is that uh, I think, you know, people like to portray Putin as some kind of like Hitler or Stalin-esque figure. I don't think that's the case. I don't think he's a particularly nice guy. I wouldn't necessarily want to live in Putin's Russia, although the U.S. isn't really a paradise either. And, uh, you know, our prison population does a, a number on Russia's. And so there's a lot of ways you could look at it and see, um, y- you know, that that the, the situation, like, you know, people like to always have to say, like, Putin's a thug and everything like that. Well, if you're in call Joe Biden a thug, you could call Putin a thug. I'll, I'll say that. Mm-hmm. And uh, honestly, I think a lot of the reason, in particular, the Biden administration and the members of his administration don't like Putin has to do with uh, Putin's like LGBTQ policy, which uh, on a world scale, I don't think is actually that extreme. I'm not like saying I support it. I'm just saying that if you look at it compared to other yeah. countries yeah. and countries that the U.S. gives billions of dollars of weapons to, it, it's a pretty liberal policy, actually. But in, in honesty, yeah, it's a little, you know, 
uh, oppressive towards the LGBTQ community, but at the same time, I don't see what particular business the U.S. has picking war with Russia over, you know, their gay rights policy. And if, you know, Putin is like a Bill Clinton Democrat on, you know, social issues. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, he signed the Defense of Marriage Act. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we give money to Turkey and Turkey has uh, even worse policy on the LGBT community. So, Yeah. Right. Yeah, Nobody talks the about East. the Turkish president having his uh, goons going out in the street and beating the LGBTQ protesters in their gay pride rally a couple summers Jesus. ago. Mm-hmm. I don't think I yeah. heard about that. But now can't talk bad about Turkey because I guess they're our ally and they're a very strategic ally, right? Being in that area. So again, it's like they're the quote unquote good guys or like, you know, they're on the good guys team. So, you know. And even want. then, though, it depends. Yeah. You, know, you know, not that you could really attack the Turkish government because Turkey is a NATO member state. But mm-hmm. in Syria, the U.S. has been directly opposed to Turkey the entire time. And in fact, the group that we back in Syria, the Syrian Kurds that we portray as like the most liberal group in the Middle East, or at least, the, you know, the liberal, the good Muslims, right? Like you had the yeah. Sunnis and the Shias that are kind <laughs> of aggressive. But, you know, the Kurds, they, they believe in like Western things, except for like the female genital mutilation, conscripting 15-year-old girls and running massive prison camps with filled with a bunch of children and women. Mm. Uh, but other than those, things you know we we love the kurds and have armed them well turkey says and labels them as a terrorist group so that's that's created some real tensions between the u.s and turkey over the past 10 years well just ask the armenians like how nice the kurds were when they were being forced out into the desert because the kurds weren't exactly helping them that much either yeah, I don't know a whole lot about that period, but I do know that Turkey had a pretty nasty role in all that as well. Yeah. I'll also mention that uh, Erdogan, during the Trump administration, that's the Turkish president, mm-hmm. had his bodyguard goons in D.C. beat up some Tur- uh, Kurdish protesters oh, yeah. on the street. I mm-hmm. think people might somewhat remember that, but no, you know, it was that. one of those things where you really can't do anything about it, so they let it go. <laughs> that's true. Mm-hmm. Um. Before I forget, wasn't wasn't there a specific role that Jen Psaki played in the uh, 2014 Ukrainian revolution or the the coup? I don't know. I gotta look it up. I, I gotta figure I that out. I feel like she's that's from those days. I can't remember. Like I know, obviously, like Victoria Newland's the one of the main names. Um, mm-hmm. but, like I think Jen Psaki's like been around with that group since those days. I just can't remember exactly what. That traitorous little witch. Uh, I, yeah, I, she is so unimpressive to. to me. I feel like I would oh. remember her. And so that I guess that's why I'm naturally like, I don't know. Because I feel like I remember her, but maybe yeah. not. But she is, um, yeah, she she's something else. The way, like, you know, even, le- I feel like even legitimate questions um, that the, the Trump press secretaries would have to kind of deal with and grapple with, she's just completely dismissive. It's unbelievable. It's frightening, yeah. actually. <laughs> makes me definitely feel like we're in the hunger games and nothing matters anymore. And we're definitely not being listened to. Not that like I, you know, I'm really voicing my opinions to those people or, you know, my representatives, quote unquote, they don't represent me. I already figured that out a long time ago, but it's, um, they don't care. (laughs) And it's frightening considering how much power they have both here and abroad. Well, that was 
uh, uplifting. <laughs> a nice break from uh, the war on us here that is COVID. Um, to Other people got it worse. Doesn't that make you feel better? Is, oh, thank you. <laughs> Kyle, no, it, it does. So um, thank you. And not that I want it to be worse for other people. And, you know, I'm relishing that at all. Like, I want it to be better for everybody. So that's why I think, like, your work in the Libertarian Institute, Scott Horton, Antiwar.com, the work done there is so important because we don't have to live in the world that we are living in that is in constant conflict. And, you know, it, it's just, I was watching um, it like a, I, sometimes I'll get in like a medieval sort of kick, like in looking at feudal Europe and the wars that um, were waged against just countries that are now friends. And it's just like France and England, when were they not fighting and battling and warring against each other and just killing their young able-bodied men like how I, it's just unfathomable or like you know how many times um england and scotland were just fighting each other all the time it's just like so much death and you know um you kind of mentioned it earlier like no and nowadays we're not in like the even world war one sort of era where like we had the trenches and you know it really like came down to how many people you actually had in a foreign country or very close to the foreign country um that they were invading or trying to occupy or whatever but it's like just because um just because it's not exactly the same scale or looks the same i mean war is hell and it's the most horrific thing we could do to another population i think and I mean, like I said, it took me a while. It took me a little bit to like sort of wake up to the horrors of all that. But um, I think, you know, that is something that no matter what's going on here at home, it's too important to completely forget about all the just travesty that is going on abroad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, thought as, a, you know, libertarians here, we understand the invisible hand and trade-offs and everything like that. And so even if we don't have a massive amount of boys coming home in body beds like happened in the past, and it is only at a rate of 20 or so a year, like has been the case over the past few years, uh, you know, there, there's still a massive trade-off when we're talking about, uh, you know, PTSD that is absolutely plaguing our military, including mm -hmm. the drone operators, including people who aren't mm -hmm. in directly involved in the fighting on the ground, but also just the fact that, you know, we're taking all these 18-year-old kids, uh, many of whom are, you know, not, the, the military's phrase, the best and the brightest may not, you know, be 100% true, but these are, like, you know, like very, like you typically physically very developed mm -hmm. people, uh, you know, people who could like pass the the military test, which aren't like the most stringent, but, you know, college level education, things like that, that you need and everything. And, you know, they're just dedicating them to learning how to kill. And at best, they never use those skills for the, you know, next four years. And I honestly, most of the people I talked to who were in the military really don't learn any transferable skills for the rest of their life. Maybe that changes, like if you're a pilot or something like that. But generally speaking, like it, even if you're working on helicopters, like there just ain't that many helicopter repair jobs in the U.S. And yeah. you know, the, a lot of the yeah. skills just don't transfer. Or they tell you, oh yeah, you, you'll pass the day. We're definitely we're gonna make you a helicopter repair man. Then after four years, you'll get out. You'll be able to go work for Boeing, make a hundred thousand a year turns out you're cleaning toilets for four years and that's you know a lot of what i hear from people too is you just get misled on what you could do but anyways 
the the trade-off there of what else could all these people be doing during that time and just think of it about like where all that money in our economy could go uh all everything that goes into you know our nuclear uh program is so much developed towards developing weapons over energy uh same thing with rockets and missiles and gps all these systems you know the the new internet project the military is working on is trying to provide uh internet to the arctic and like a space tether system for all their different military satellites and everything like that but not that i necessarily want the government just dumping this money into the private industry street buzz a hell of a lot better than just dumping it into the you know pentagon waste bucket and and doing nothing with it you know the, there is real things that you know we our troops and our money could be doing other than uh, again killing or waiting to be destroyed at best and if not just sitting around yeah yeah it's either a waste of time money or worse off lives and mm-hmm. um they're all valuable and so yeah. Well, anyway, we kind of ran through that. Um, that was a really quick hour. <laughs> um, Kyle, I know we kind of glossed over like where you're working, but um, anywhere you want to point people in particular to find your work or um, contact you, maybe? Uh, so check out the Institute, the Libertarian Institute, that uh, is the great Scott Horton who put that together. It's uh, me, him, Sheldon Richmond, Keith Knight, Patrick McFarlane, uh, Connor Freeman, uh, Will Porter, and Tommy Solomon. So a great lineup of people there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Will and Connor helped me out with the show. Will's currently on hiatus for, from the show, but me and Will are now writing uh, articles just about every day that you could find at the Institute. Um so it's a part of my news roundup. I think people really like them, short news pieces, and then a whole bunch of links underneath of everything else going on in the world. And uh, check out my podcast, Conflicts of Interest. Uh, I post a lot of like the stuff I do on the blog at antiwar.com, and then check out the viewpoints at antiwar.com. That's what I put together there. Uh, if you want to contact me, probably the best place to hit me up is on Twitter, but Twitter, Facebook, or just, you know, leave a comment somewhere. I don't have that many people hit me up that I usually get back to everyone. (laughs) Perfect. Um, Glad you're so accessible, um, despite how busy you are. So, and Will is also original um, MLGA uh, group. So (laughs) please pass him our hellos. And when he's not on a hiatus, um, we'd love to have him back too. All right. Well, I'm talking to Will like in about five minutes here, so I will tell him that. Well, tell him, tell him his birthday twin, Maddie, says hello, and um, I hope that he's doing well. (laughs) Will do, will do. So thanks again, Kyle, for coming on. Um, You know, we'll stay in touch. Um, Everybody listening, please go follow Kyle and his work. I'm sure you've already, you know, obviously, if you listen to this podcast, I'm sure you're aware of places like antiwar.com and Libertarian Institute, but now you... uh, get to sort of like know a little bit more about the guy behind the scenes there. Thanks, Maddie. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks, Kyle. Vixies, that was Kyle, our good and longtime friend. And we really appreciate what him and others are doing at um, antiwar.com and Libertarian Institute. I in particular like used to donate a lot to antiwar.com, but that credit card might have got lost in the mail. But anyway, like if you've got some dollars to support and send their way, that's great. If not, just share their work. Um, Like I said, it's really important that despite like what's going on here and how hellish it seems, it's definitely like Kyle said, you know, other people have it worse. And um, and some of that is our doing for sure. (sighs) So 
Thanks again, Vixies, for tuning in. Uh, we'll catch you next time. But in the meantime, please keep it sane, keep it peaceful, keep it voluntary. Bye.